Welcome to Discourse. This is the RSP's monthly look at how the media is talking about religion. My name is Theo Wildcroft. I uh, work at the Central Yoga Studies at SOAS and I teach a little bit for the Open University and a few other things as well. And my research interests are kind of anywhere where people are thinking about meaning um, and meaning making, but particularly in terms of lived religious practices with a specific focus on kind of things like yoga and, and things like that. Um, I think that's probably enough about me. These things always seem really vague, don't they? They always come down to something like <laughs> meaning. <laughs> but Emily, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Emily Cruz. I just finished my PhD at the University of Chicago Divinity School, um, and I am now a postdoctoral teaching fellow at um, <clears throat> University of Chicago, where I teach um, in the undergraduate religious studies program. And I am, uh, my research is about motherhood and fertility and the body and its relationship to how we think about ourselves as religious people and how we construct uh, a kind of ideal uh, cultural religious identity. Fantastic. And Alison. Oh, so my name is Alison Robertson. Uh, I'm, uh, I guess you'd have to say I'm an early career scholar. It means uh, I don't do much that I actually get paid for, uh, but I have a lot of different things that I'm interested in. Um, my doctoral research was on kink as religious practice. That's uh, BDSM, bondage, domination, submission, and masochism, if you're wondering what that is. Um, and that sort of feeds into a, a broader interest in what religion is, what gets to be called religion, what doesn't get to be called religion. Uh, and most of my research interests come into that sort of area about um, fluid boundaries and who establishes boundaries, who decides what gets put on what side of what boundary, what happens if you cross over that, um, and how the framework of religion helps us look at different sides of different boundaries in different ways, um, particularly as it relates to bodily experiences of things and personal interpretations of those. So lived religion, as uh, I think Theo mentioned, also being an interest. So bodies, boundaries, lived religion, a lot of common interests, basically, between the three of us, I think. And uh, I meant to say congratulations on finishing the PhD, Emily. It's always a moment it should pause to recognise. I think... <laughs> Um, okay, so let's get into it. Um, we've chosen some stories today that uh, not necessarily the things that are really taking over the news. A lot of those are kind of quite depressing, I think, in many ways. Um, but we've we've taken some stories that we think uh, can allow us to really think about how religious studies can help us understand um, kind of contemporary events a little bit more thoroughly. And Emily, you're going to start for us. Sure. So I have two articles from the New York Times published uh, about a week apart, and both of them are about um, a case by a person named John Ramirez, an incarcerated person in Texas, um, and uh, his um, asserting of what he calls his rights to a particular kind of uh, religious <clears throat> experience um, during execution. He is um, uh, was due to be executed um, on September 8th, but his case was stayed by the Supreme Court. Um, so Allison's introduction of her interests, I think, um, in many ways, boundaries, what counts as what, um, are exactly, um, that's exactly what I want to talk about in this article. <clears throat> so I think, um, you know, I won't give the whole background, but basically the state of Texas is in the midst of trying to figure out what it thinks about who belongs 
in an execution chamber and who doesn't. And this case puts a really fine point on that because the uh, incarcerated person in the center of the court case, John Ramirez, is asking for his pastor to be able to be in the chamber with him, uh, laying his hands on his body and praying with him. And the state of Texas uh, initially rejected his request and said, no, that um, both violates security and a sense of order. Um, It's disruptive. And so we can't do it. And uh, the case that Ramirez brought went all the way to the Supreme Court. And now the debate is about what do incarcerated people um, have a right to at execution and uh, how does that relate to who their religious practitioners are uh, and aren't? Um, yeah, and, you know, Texas has been, uh, there have been all kinds of sort of backs and forth recently in the last uh, three or four years about who counts as uh, a religious practitioner and what can those people do. Um, and so there have been cases with um, Muslim incarcerated people demanding um, to have their religious officials, Buddhist uh, incarcerated people, and Texas has gone back and forth about uh, how to handle these things. And, um, you know, this tells us immediately that Texas has a particular implicit definition of what religion is. Um, and it didn't include um, you know, Buddhist practitioners of religion. Um, and what we see here is that Ramirez is asking for a particular kind of religious care um, that is confusing or threatening, um, or at least outside the definition for the state of Texas. Uh, so what he specifically asks for, uh, he calls comfort. He finds, he argues it comforting to have his body touched and to hear the prayers Uh, of his pastor allowed. Um, And this doesn't fit into what Texas thinks is an appropriate kind of religious practice. See, that's interesting because it seemed to me when I read it that that it's not just a question of definitions of what it means. It's also a question of what religion is for because he's talking about religion as comfort, as this human presence, as this relationship between him and the pastor, as somebody recognizing that he's a human being in these last moments of his life. And I think, um, Sister Helen Prejean is quoted in the article as saying similar things. And to me, that's a huge part of what religion is for. It's about human connection, but I think intellectually, academically, And to a large extent in social discourse, uh, certainly in our part of the world, religion is this sort of uh, intellectual, spiritual, non-fleshy thing for which comfort would would have no place in that. That's not a religious thing. That's something else. And it almost seemed to me like this whole debate is trying to separate out this sort of very human concern of religion about connection and relationship and bodies in contact with each other from the more spiritual, more ephemeral, more abstract idea of what religion is. Yeah. Yeah. I think exactly what we see here is this particular kind of uh, white Protestant, um, liberal Protestant definition of what religion is, that it's private, it's internal, it's quiet, um, that it's about belief. And so something that requires physical touch or an embodied form of religion, something that is sensory, that might be, you know, too loud uh, in quotation marks. um, All those things are understood to be outside the appropriate kind of um, realm of religion. And so, yeah, I think there's very much, and that's understood by the, the state of Texas. So there's very much in this article, I think, a laying out of a variety of different definitions, um, some of which sort of impinge upon what the state of Texas is willing to grant or not. Um, and yeah, I think comfort is a big one. This idea that, um, 
an incarcerated person deserves comfort from a religious professional in uh, the exact moment of death. So, um, you know, one of the quotations in the article that um, Ramirez says is, it would just be comforting um, not to just have his pastor there observing, um, but to pray out loud and hold his hand or touch his foot. Um, and Sister Helen Brejean, who you mentioned, who is um, an anti-death penalty activist, you know, says later, um, basically, isn't this the least we can do for someone who is about to die? Um, can't we just offer the comfort to that person? And she says, in the last moments of life, what she can offer is her presence. Um, and she says, the quotation is, at the end, it's look at my face. Everyone else in that room is there to kill them. And mm-hmm. I think it's exactly this idea that um, comfort is uh, warranted um, but of course the state of Texas wants to adjudicate what kind of comfort is appropriate. Well, that, see that, that's interesting to me because it, it, there's a, there's a sense also in, 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 in John's words about wanting to participate in the, in, in, or have agency over the manner of his death in some way. Like the state has made the decision that he's going to die. Um, you know, we can think about the, the morality of ways of that, of that, that's much more of a kind of ethical and theological question, but the, there, there are interesting questions around does he then have the right to make decisions about the manner of his death? Um, and in his case, he's saying, okay, I'm going to die. That is the thing that's going to happen. I don't get to choose the place, the manner, or anything else, but I do want the comfort in the moment of death itself. Um, so there's also a struggle for agency here, isn't there, I think? Um, and, and as you said, a, 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 a struggle for space, like who has the right to be in the room um, and who has the right to request changes to that process and who doesn't? Um, the really interesting ones, I think. It's, it's also interesting, though, isn't it, that in other circumstances where you know you're going to die, there wouldn't be anything like the same struggle for your right to say who's there and with you when you do. Oh, goodness, no. You no, know, no. The, the, All the dignity it's, would be afforded. It's a, exactly. Yeah. It's a conversation that only becomes acute in this circumstance because they aren't only saying, the state isn't only saying we have the right to make you die, which, as you say, is a, is a separate debate, is a more abstract debate even. The state is going to make him die and they're not only saying we are going to do that, they're also saying everything else that might attend a foreseen death is irrelevant to you. And he says, doesn't he, in the article that he thinks that's spiteful. He finds that personally spiteful and I, it, it struck me that way too when I read the article, I have to say, and it makes me think about um on a more abstract level about the purposes of the law i suppose i mean is it about revenge i don't think it should be um and if you are going to strip away all the things that we would find make death dignified and bearable and just recognize this is a human being whose life is being taken away is it more about revenge than anything else at that point can you justify those things in any other way yeah i mean i think we see all kinds of kind of you know potential scholarly categories coming up here. Um, Yeah, something like who has the right to determine bodily autonomy and agency, uh, how are spaces prescribed or created, and who has the right to adjudicate who's allowed in them, Um, issues of dignity, humanity, how we define what it means to be human. And, um, you know, this is a big discussion in abolitionists um, and anti-incarceration circles. Um, 
how do we, how are incarcerated people stripped of their dignity um, and stripped of their humanity? Um, and so I think the question of spite uh, is an interesting one because it gets us at the very affective relationship between the state uh, and the incarcerated person and the person who is approaching execution. Um, and again, back to this idea that comfort when you're in a space where everyone is, uh, you know, as Prejean says, is there to kill you or everyone is there to control every minute aspect of your body, the right to someone to offer you, um, you know, an impartial voice or a non-state actor voice is, is very compelling and also understandably very threatening to the state. The idea that you have a figure who can um, defray from the state's power um, is very threatening. And I think in the article we see, you know, when the state goes or when the, um, these cases that I mentioned earlier have gone to the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court has been sort of unsure about what to do to them, do with them. And all the justices seem willing to grant that incarcerated people have a right to uh, religious support and to free exercise, but they can't agree on how to do that and what counts under religion, uh, under that definition. So Kavanaugh gave uh, an out in 2019 to a case where he says, look, you have to allow, um, incarcerated people to exercise freely. But what you don't have to do is allow people into the chamber. And so he, he says, look, you can just kick everybody out, all the religious practitioners. Um, because, you know, sure, if you don't like what they're doing, just tell them they can't go in. So for a while, no religious practitioners of any kind or religious professionals were allowed in the chamber. Um, and now they are. So now we're back to the sort of debate about what to do here. Um, and I think that's where you can see the state really attempting to enforce its power against something that might threaten it, even in this very minute, very temporary, but potentially really profound moment. And, and also state power against um, against things that, that are visceral, that are like, there's, there's a real sense, there is such a strong sense of the sensory here in the idea of the slippery slope that certain rituals or certain practitioners would be, you know, would, would be, uh, would be too much or would, would in some way kind of overflow um, what you might call the kind of state sanctity of what's going on you know the state has a particular way for which they want this to end and they do not want it to end with kind of wailing and gnashing of teeth and rending of garments you know yeah exactly it, it's something about it, it's something about ownership of the whole event isn't it because I think there's two things that have come up for me out of what Theo was just saying and one of those is that from the state perspective having someone present in the chamber who's there for him rather than for his death. And that might sound like a subtle distinction, but that is the distinction he's drawing, I think. This pastor would be there for him as a person, not for his death. Everyone else is there for his death. I think the state view of that is that that's somehow undermining of the rightness and appropriateness of what it is they're doing because they don't want him to be a human being anymore. And that's the other point I think that's come up from what Theo was just saying about wailing and gnashing of teeth is that if you have wailing and gnashing of teeth at death, you have to accept that you've taken the life of a human being and you have to accept that that's a, that's a huge thing and a terrible thing, even if you think it's a justified terrible thing. And I think an awful lot of the state apparatus of execution uh, is about avoiding that truth, is about getting away from the idea that this is a human life that you're taking. I know there's been 
not so much really recently, but I know there was a lot of stuff about lethal injection and getting the appropriate drugs for that and why that mattered a couple of years ago. I don't know if either of you came across any of that stuff. Um, but one of the controversies around lethal injection is the first thing that gets injected is basically uh, for paralysis. It stops the evidence that the person is suffering in their death. Um, that's one of the three things that gets injected in certainly in most places where they use lethal injection. And that it seems to me to be a sort of epitome of this same thing. We don't want you, we want this to happen. The state's decided this is going to happen, but we don't want you to connect this with the idea that taking a human life is a terrible thing and, uh, and an intimate thing. You know, those people in that room, they're the last people he's going to see, they're the last contact he's going to have. And the state wants to, to somehow separate that from any human element to it. It, And I don't think they necessarily want to articulate it that way, but it does seem to me that that's a big part of what's going on. Yeah, I think they absolutely don't want to articulate it that way. I think the whole goal is to sort of strip, um, you know, indicators of humanity from the entire process and to create a kind of narrative that this is just, um, you know, the method of justice and that this is how we do things and this is how it's meant to go. And someone who injects humanity into that experience, um, is someone who, you know, kind of threatens the, like, you know, I guess, sort of sanctity, for lack of a better term, or maybe the totally appropriate term, um, of of that state process. You know, some of the article nicely points out is that in Texas, this is particularly um, an interesting debate because uh, Texas both has this, you know, really strong bent toward protecting um, the religious rights of its citizens against what it perceives to be um, a much less religious, um, you know, national body and um, protecting the rule of law. And of course, religion here is defined as um, Christianity, um, both implicitly and explicitly in Texas. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that um, that makes religion, certainly the kind of religion as practiced by by Sister Helen Prejean, for example, it's one of the things that makes it deeply threatening, isn't it? Is this emphasis on the humanity of religion and religious contact and religious community rather than the ceremony? Because you can see, you know, sort of high ritual, you go back to Victorian England, for example, or even earlier than that, you know, being offered the last rites before your execution. You can see how that feeds into the ceremony of the state and the the solemnity of it whereas the you know i just want someone to hold my hand that doesn't really that is a fascinating uh, story obviously i think we could keep going for hours on the question of uh, how states administer the death penalty and how religion comes into that um but actually i think pretty much all three of our main stories today are to do with that can that that space between religion and the state um so let's Let's move to Alison. What do you have to tell us today? Well, it's really interesting, actually. I mean, I do think this is going to cover a lot of the same issues. And I didn't necessarily when I found the story, but it, it's the story that spoke to me. So it's the one that, that I've brought today. And it's uh, it's about a piece of land uh, in Phoenix, which is Arizona, right? Um sacred piece of land sacred to the Apache called Oak Flat that has been the subject of various legal wranglings since 2014. So it's going to the Supreme Court later this week. I think the article says the 22nd for a sort of final decision. Um, So the land was uh, given basically to a mining company uh, back in 2014. And the native owners of the land were given an equivalent space of land somewhere else. The article only says 
6,000 acres elsewhere. Like that's the only thing that matters. Um, the tribal argument is that there are many religious rites that can only happen at this site. Uh, the site is a place of communication um, between the creator of the land and the people on the land. It's a place where messengers of that creator live. Um, and so if they don't have access to that site, they don't have access to those messengers. So it's, it's, unique site as far as the uh, the indigenous religion is concerned um the article was talking about a spiritual convoy that's traveling from the site through to san francisco where the hearing will be um and one of the many things that interested me about this uh, is that that convoy is made up of representatives from many different tribes so not just the apache nation whose land it is but from other tribes all essentially saying the same thing. They're saying that um, if the land is sacred, then the land is sacred. It doesn't matter who it claims to be belonging to, uh, who claims to be owned by, rather. Um, but also talking about this unity between the tribes as a necessary response to colonisation. So there's a quote in the article, uh, I think, from a member of the Chumash tribe, saying that you know they were encouraged to fight the Apaches back in the 18th, 19th century, they're encouraged to fight one another. And actually unity now is one of the best ways to oppose the continuing colonisation and continuing erosion of their sacred sites. And other members of other tribes saying the same thing. Um, so I think there's a lot of a lot of really interesting things there. Probably the thing that struck me first when I read it is this idea that just giving them another piece of land the same size solves your issue. It's like, hey, there's no issue. You've got just as much land over there. <laughs> And I thought that, but that said something really profound to me about this dominant view of what religion is that we've just been talking about. Because obviously from a Protestant Christian perspective, I can knock your church down, we'll build you another church somewhere else, it'll be fine. You can do exactly the same stuff in that church. And for the majority of Christian communities, they wouldn't have a religious argument against that. They might have a personal emotional one, but most Christian churches aren't built on sacred sites that can't be moved. Or at least not once that still exist. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and, and that assumption is that's just assumed that that carries across, yeah. regardless yeah. Uh, of your actual religious practice. Again, I think it's partly at least the difference between religion as belief and religion as practice. And I think yeah. indigenous religion is very much religion as practice. Yeah, I think you're definitely back to you know how um, some sort of high sort of person in the position of high, you know, at the top of the hierarchy adjudicates what counts as religion. And when you have something about in-placeness and a particular sense of space, uh, that doesn't jive with something that says that religion is personal and individual and about um, the immaterial. Uh, and, you know, now I can't remember now if this, I think we had this discussion in our first <laughs> attempt, first attempt. At this. it didn't work out. Um, but, you know, um, Allison and I were talking a lot about like the, the a sort of discussion of sincerity um, and the way that like, well, if your religion is real, if this is really a real thing, um, why would you need the place uh, as, you know, being this kind of particular um uh, read that comes up in both these articles. It's not the place that matters, right? It should be your internal relationship to something um, as the argument goes. And we're seeing here that in both cases, the internal is not all that matters. It might not even be important at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I, it's I, your, think, it's, I think it's your internal relationship to something internal as well, because I think that uh, for, for many of the more mainstream faiths, um, Yes, you know, 
the idea of the earth can be sacred, but that's not the same thing as a particular relationship with a particular piece of land, basically. Um, Experiencing sacredness, isn't it? It's um, Or making sacredness yourself, and that's something that Western views of religion are really opposed to, the idea that you make sacredness yourself. One of the things I remember, I don't want to get too academic on people here, but one of the things I remember most about reading uh, Bruno Latour's We've Never Been Modern is the bit where he's talking about the different expectations between Polynesian islanders and Christian missionaries. And he basically describes it as the Christian missionaries are saying to the islanders, how can these figures of your gods be sacred when you made them? Mm. And the islanders are saying to the Christian missionaries, how can they not be sacred when we made them? Yeah. Yeah. And it's that that fundamental mismatch of expectation. On the one side, you've got the, we made it, so it's sacred. We're here, so it's sacred. We experience it as sacred, so it's sacred. And on the other side, you've got this, of course it's not sacred because it hasn't got this external, whatever this thing is that makes something sacred and we don't really know what it is, but it hasn't got it, so you can't have it as sacred. Mm-hmm. It's a real, it's a fundamental mismatch of expectation, isn't it, as to what those things mean? Mm. I wonder. Like, I wonder how... You know, we talk about sincerity. We've talked about sincerity already. I wonder how sincere the state is in these negotiations in the sense that I do wonder whether legislators here are very much aware that there are particular pieces of land that have particular significance, but it serves them well to pretend they don't. And it serves them well to pretend that one piece of land is equivalent to another. It's interesting, actually, because I did a bit of background reading on this. Um, the article talks about things like the Restoration of Religious Freedom Act and things like that that I wasn't super familiar with. Uh, I did some reading around it, and there does seem to be something of a history of going from, well, of course, it means all religion. If they say the land is sacred, the land is sacred. You can't inhibit their attitude to it. And then that gets eroded by various court cases, and then it gets reestablished, and then it gets eroded again. It seems to be almost a cyclical history. Mm. But one of the things that struck me about it and obviously I was only reading uh, proceeds of the of the process, was the number of times that judgments that went against native communities and native cases were referring to belief. Whereas um, the argument, obviously, from the native side is not rooted in belief in the same way. So the, the, because the Constitution, I'm sure Emily will correct me if I'm wrong, the Constitution doesn't really go into any detail about what religion is. It says you've got the freedom of expression of it. And that's pretty much all it says. So you can't establish it between church and state and you've got freedom to practice it. And everything else is pretty much then down to interpretation. And it seems to me that the state uh, in its various manifestations is interpreting it in that very white christian protestant way that we talked about before as being about belief and faith in the invisible um and whether or not they're doing that in good faith i couldn't say but they're holding fast to that yeah while anything that is is challenging to that that religion is more than faith or other than faith or vested in practice that's where the erosion happens um and you know someone gains some ground on that and then it gets eroded again in in another way yeah i mean i think we might even it's like i wonder if analytically, it's helpful to even step back from the question of whether or not, you know, we don't know and can't evaluate through any scholarly tools, we have the sincerity or good faith actions of anyone. And so I think a state body in particular that, you know, uh, all the ways it's constructed are meant to depersonalize it, uh, and to give it this kind of higher status or authority. Um, And so I think what we can evaluate from the outside is certainly that, 
um, a claim to the sacrality of space is not understood as valid in this instance, or not understood uh, as valid enough to contradict a gift to a corporate body from the state. Um, and to assume that there's just an easy switch between one set of 6,000 acres and another. Um, and I think, you know, we were talking earlier about the way that the tools of religious studies can be used to look at, um, you know, uh, news articles, social media, pop culture, whatever, um, which is something I'm always, you know, telling my students, like, you can use the stuff we, we use mm. to think about religion, to think about anything. Um, and this, I think, works really nicely here because we can see that even if we can't plumb the depths of someone's motivations, we can evaluate what they're doing and how those, you know, things impact others and the ways they're part of a long historical trajectory. And this is part of a long historical trajectory. Uh, the state acting based on a definition that is implied, but is pretty consistent, um, which again, rules out uh, often the embodied, the emotional, the sensory, um, the undignified, the spatial. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just, I was just aware at the time. I was going to move us on um, again. I think we could spend the whole episode talking about this, but I was going to move it on because I think it links really interestingly um, to our kind of last main story um, in terms of again this connection between the state and religion and the idea of uh, you know what you you know what what are your rights as a citizen in terms of religious uh, freedom. Um, because I want to try a very, there's a very different story we, we want to talk about, which is about um, the kind of growing Catholic church abuse scandal in France. Um, and sadly, we do have to qualify which country it's in and which one it's in, because, you know, Catholic abuse scandals have been moving through the Catholic church, as we, as we all know, for a number of years. Um, and I think, obviously, as, as we know, the more the more we find out or the more we examine institutions for this kind of abuse, the more abuse comes to light, basically. So um, that's important. But the reason why I wanted to talk about it was very specifically, uh, there has been a senior bishop in France uh, this week who has claimed, who has, or who has confirmed, essentially the sanctity of the confessional. So what the bishop has said is, uh, if uh, someone in confession reveals details of uh, child abuse that they have committed, that the priest involved, um, the kind of sanctity of that confessional is more important than the law um, in, in French law. And the French interior minister and I think various other kind of state actors have come out very vehemently in opposition to that, saying that the law takes precedent so if you so it's kind of what we in the UK would consider to be a safeguarding thing that if someone comes to you with details of uh, of child abuse that you have a legal duty to report even if it that is within within the confines of the confession um it's 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 a very stark kind of uh kind of either or situation and, and debate going on here but it also speaks again to the histor history of what's going on because it speaks to the history of the French states um, kind of very specific attitude to, towards religion, I think, in which um, religion and the state is so separate in France that you have the right to religious freedom. You do not have the right to impose that in any way on the state. 
So over and again, we see these times when the French state makes pronouncements where it's basically saying, if we are involved in this, then you don't get, you know, you don't get religious, you don't get a religious exemption, basically. So classic examples have included, for example, um, uh, the banning of hijabs uh, in schools. If they're state schools, you know, you don't get an exemption. You have to wear the things that we want you to wear as the state. And this is a, a kind of a very extreme example of that, I think, um, where, again, what we're talking about here is this, you know, how far um, how far does the sphere of the religion and the sphere of the state overlap? Um, and in what ways do the needs or the rights of one of those institutions have uh, a primacy over the other? And I think it's was a really interesting question in and of itself, but also a very situated one in which I can't, like, I can't imagine having similar conversations in other countries in the same way, I think. Um, the argument would be very different. I think it's very explicit in France, as you say, in a way yeah. that it's not certainly in a lot of Europe. The, the, the fact that there is a debate is very explicit in France, mm. whereas a lot of other places are all, well, of course we must make religious exemptions, of course religion matters. Mm. What I find really interesting in light of the other conversations that we've had today is that we're still ending up with the same result aren't we we've had two stories from the states which says uh you know which has the attitude of of course religion matters will make religious exemptions but that has nonetheless resulted in religion being sidelined and people's religious preferences being limited as a result and then we've got france that goes we won't make religious exemptions of course we won't and yet we're talking about a situation where people's agency is similarly being curtailed and their primacy of religion is also set aside so it's the same result from opposite we've got but we've got to the same point of the state going i will decide what happens to your body effectively i'll decide what happens to your body and your well-being um and what it is you say i will decide all of those things um and religion is irrelevant and yet coming up with different reasons why religion's irrelevant because the base stance on religion is the opposite that's what i mean yeah does that make sense yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to look at, <clears throat> you know, if we're sort of trying to use the tools of religious studies to plumb the depths of these articles or, or, or I guess, of these issues. Um, obviously, if we had more time, we'd do a lot more research, right? Yeah. We are academic, after yeah. all. Um, <clears throat> but, I mean, it's especially interesting. Yeah, I think context um, matters a lot. Um, and if we're talking about, you know, differently constructed governments, et cetera, but we still have a kind of trend wherein um, the state occupies, you know, just like uh, Alison was saying, occupies a particular place of um, power. Uh, and what would be interesting is to compare some of, you know, to look for a similar kind of situation outside um, a state citizen dynamic. So to see something like how do we see um you know, implicit definitions like this or implicit relationships adjudicated um, in a different kind of institutional individual relationship or between individuals or between institutions um, and to see kind of how the hierarchy shakes out and the relationships shake out there. I'd be really interested to see how much when we're talking about the confessional quote unquote, how much that is essentially a quality of relationship and how much it is a, a, a property of the ritual. So is it true that those kinds of confession, the sanctity of that confessional space is only respected within the boundaries of an official, for want of a better word, an official confession, you know, with the with the rights associated with it and the right patterns of speech and so on and so forth? 
or does that extend to any time that um, a, a parishioner might have conversations with with their priest, with their confidant? Because there are many, right, many right. occasions in which those relationships with spiritual advisors, emotional advisors of different kinds, um, uh, you know, the 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 this, the rights of the state, um, or certainly the rights the rights of the community to safeguard its most vulnerable people do come higher or are seen to be to have a higher priority than the rights of that of that secrecy um and i, I i'm sure it's different in the states but i know here in in the uk you know you can't be involved in any form of pretty much any form of education in this country or any kind of connection to youth work of any kind without having discussions around safeguarding and safeguarding a lot of safeguarding comes down to what can be held as as a secret and what what cannot. If someone comes to you and discloses evidence of abuse that either they have suffered or they have committed or that has been or is ongoing around them, and what your rights and responsibilities are um, as a confidant. Um, and you know there are things we all we all have to we have to commit to as educators uh, in light of that. Um, and it's interesting to me that within those different roles of confidant, um, that a priestly caste would see itself as separate to those rules, I guess. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting question is like what types of secrecy are protected and what relationships that, you know, um, wherein secrets are divulged are protected. And so, you know, in the United States, um, especially on TV, everyone loves to talk about, you know, client, uh, attorney-client privilege and uh, doctor-patient privilege, et cetera. Um, but yeah, certainly, I mean, in, in my role, um, you know, teaching in the university, I'm a mandated reporter for um, any yes. kinds of confessions of, you know, sexual assault in this case. Um, so, right, who has the right to, um, you know, divert from the legal expectation and who doesn't? Um, and I think, yeah, the question of, of ritual is an interesting one because if you and your priest are at a bar um, or, you know, you and your priest <laughs> yeah. are at a picnic um, and what, you know, is it within, you know, these sort of sacred confines and quotation marks of the confessional? Um, do you have to agree that this is a confession? You know, what are the sort of, what are the protections um, and how are those ritualized is, a, I think, a really interesting question. And it's bigger than that as well, even, isn't it? Because um, if, as long as you're putting it within the shape of a confession, you're talking effectively about Catholicism, aren't you? What if you're mm. a Baptist who just happens to confide in your Baptist minister? Can you frame that as a confession? Yeah. And if you can't, why can't you? So the law is effectively saying, um, as it is in all of our stories, going, well, this is our principle and we're going to make an exception to this principle, but we're not going to make that exception. It's, it's, it's drawing this category. This is where the exceptions are. And once you start to unpick that, it, it looks a bit arbitrary, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's specifically, I think, what the the French Interior Minister has said is that um, he's he's saying that the the issue here is saying that the secrecy of the confessional is, and I quote, above the laws of the Republic. He's saying, you know, the laws of the French Republic come first, and they must come first for everyone. From come first for everyone, regardless of kind of you know historical. Um, kind of you know position within France and so on um so yeah I think it's it, it you know again really interesting questions about how how state and religion come together and I guess fight out fight it out for kind of space and discourse and uh rights and responsibilities in many different ways um 
again, I'm kind of aware at the time. So I was going to, I'm after we've, we've talked about some very serious things. I think we knew we were going to, um, but I thought, uh, we should follow, uh, we should kind of round up with some, maybe some slightly more, not necessarily lighthearted, um, but more kind of quirky kind of news, I guess. I'm, and I know I have one, I think David actually found it for us, which was the, um, the idea that conservative Christians or evangelicals specifically, I think it is, want to replace Halloween with Jesus Ween. And this has gone all <laughs> over social media and everyone's kind of you know, laughing about it. Um, and there's obviously interesting things here from the point of view of uh, a holiday that is already Christian being renamed to make it more Christian. But I, having kind of read into it a little bit uh, in amongst all the jokes, I'm... I think that the thing that strikes me is they're not necessarily trying to make it more Christian so much as more evangelical, as in they specifically want to reassert them to, to kind of uh, have a, to kind of add a sense of mission into it, that it should be about spreading the word of, 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 of God kind of thing. And that that is specifically a, a mission thing rather than necessarily a religion thing um, is what they're trying to rebrand it as. Um, but I'm sure it made both yeah. of you smile. It, it certainly made me smile. <laughs> and it definitely, you know, cued my uh, upbringing in the evangelical American South, um, mm. where I was like, yeah, this feels familiar, um, <laughs> where, you know, so much discussion of, um, you know, Halloween in particular, but holidays in general is infused with a sense of um, erosion. You know, the idea that like our practices are being lost or, um, you know, the true meaning of things is being uh, defrayed um, or there's a threat from some kind of, you know, secular practice around what should be something more Christian, more sacred, more meaningful. Um, and so I, you know, in reading it, I'm like, yeah, I can, can think about my upbringing going to like haunted houses, um, you know, within, with a Baptist church, but those were hell houses where you had to go envision what it meant to actually wow. die and not be saved. Um, <laughs> And so it's a lot yeah, more scary than <laughs> kind of yeah. three. And I think that's the idea. Yeah, that's that's, like, that's wholesome wow. entertainment for you. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so let's stop seeing spirits as like funny things that you dress up as and instead see them as, you know, people whose relationships to this, you know, particular divine figure are flawed or ideal or whatever. Um and it's simultaneously funny and really telling, I think, because you're able to see where is it that people are really struggling to hold on to something or to prevent something else. I, I think that's something various Christian churches over various centuries have struggled with in relation to Halloween. I think Halloween's always been a slightly dodgy festival from the perspective of a lot of church authorities because of that association with the dead and with the spirits and, you know, that sort of half world that Christianity has a really uneasy relationship with. Um, it really smacks of paganism in the way that a lot of other Christian dates, certainly saints, holy days, um, it's not as obvious, you know, pagan connections wouldn't be as easy to draw. It wouldn't be as easy to slip accidentally into pagan kinds of worship and pagan kinds of engagement. Whereas all Hallows is, it's really easy to to accidentally slip into pagan kind of conversation about the dead being close to you and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So I think historically the church has always had an uneasy relationship with it. Um, certainly I think it's been banned in England before, not recently, but, you know, historically it's been a celebration that you weren't supposed to have. Um, 
because you aren't supposed to have a relationship with the dead until you're dead yourself, I think, in, in most Christian understandings of life after death. Yeah, and you're, they're not supposed to hang about either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, certainly not a relationship where um, there is agency on the part of those spirits to come and go. Yeah. Two-way relationship. You know, at yeah, yeah. moments, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. it threatens, I think, the kind of primacy of... Uh, divine power which is of course really intriguing <laughs> i have to say the thing that irritated me about it was actually the etymology question which is really i don't know as someone who has been very involved in language study the fact that they've called it jesus ween rather than jesus Eve, which is because yeah. <laughs> it's all hallows eve it's not all hallows yeah. ween yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the w just, is not the w is not there by accident yeah the w has been transposed i think from one to the other and i find that that you know there's an ahistoricity there that's really interesting as well i'm immensely yeah. irritating um, and that's I exactly also, what I was going to say. And in, and, in a, and in a few, in the last few years as well, I've also seen again, mostly kind of on social media. There's a kind of a running joke and meme around um, Halloween also being uh, claimed as kind of an unofficial queer holiday as well, which is really interesting. You know, whereas if Christmas is all about families and wholesomeness, um, that Halloween is letting your freak flag flag fly, fly, and a lot of queer culture is, uh, has kind of semi-adopted it as a kind of like well you know if you think we're the freaks and the geeks that's that's where we're going to hang out you know Definitely. yeah and i think this is where like um it's so interesting to think about who lays claim to what and where like yeah. so many of these struggles come <laughs> yeah. in is like well whose holiday is halloween you know is it for kids is it for queers is it for like what you know what's the sort of debate um and i think you know i um i taught for two years at the university of alabama roll tide um Ooh. and i was um i taught uh, a bunch of sections of intro to religion and my really incredible students routinely came back to this question of is Halloween a Christian holiday? Is Halloween a religious holiday in their, uh, you know, I gave them a chance to do presentations on any question that interested them um, in groups. And this would come up a lot, uh, the Christianity or lack thereof of a holiday. Um, and, you know, early on, their answers were really personal and about their own upbringing. And as we sort of went through the course and they came back to the question at the end for their presentations, they were able to subject these questions to not like yes or no, but what do we mean when we say a holiday is Christian or not Christian or whatever? Um, and they were very good at picking out um, the kind of historical debates over ownership of a, of a holiday um, and the kind of anxiety that they could raise. Um, it was very cool to see them work yeah. through that. And, stuff. and the very idea that it's a zero sum game, you know, that it, if it's, if, if yeah. it can only, it can only belong to one tradition or one group or, you know, the whole thing is kind of interesting. Um so we've one way or another we've been talking for ages. I'm <laughs> sure other things to do. I'm hopefully uh, just the the RSP editors will be able to edit this down to something fun. I but I've had fun. I hope you guys have had fun at any rate. I've definitely, definitely. Had fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm lovely, and I, I suppose we can wish uh, we can wish the listeners a happy Halloween as well because it'll be a, a, yes. a little while before it uh, comes out. And, and have an awesome uh, Halloween or Samhain or whatever else you're celebrating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jesus Ween. <laughs> or a Jesus Ween, indeed. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> whatever floats your boat. Just just put the W on the right side of that line. Which <laughs> 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 kind of annoys. Uh, I feel a little bit like I have friends who do a lot of Sanskrit stuff, and I feel I, I'm starting to real um kind of remember what they're like if you get the translation of a Sanskrit term wrong. <laughs> it's the same problem. Really, um, it's just always Americans messing things up. That's what, that's what we know. <laughs> oh no, trust us, we're perfectly capable of doing that over here. Um, <laughs> ooh, all on our own. Um uh, anyway, um thank you both so much for joining the me. Naps. Naps. Back to naps. <laughs> Back to naps. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So let's plug naps um, as a as a naps and cake. Naps and yes. cake and is cake. what we need. Yep. Um, all right. Have a lovely uh, rest of the day, uh, whatever you're doing, and hopefully we'll do this again sometime. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius and social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.